Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Um, for real, y'all, I know I say I'm excited pretty much every episode to say I'm going to have this conversation, but I'm for real, for real, for real excited <laughs> to have this conversation. Today, my guest is a data science professional and a movement organizer, um, but I think for me, more importantly, this is one of my homies that I go back to high school with. So I have with me today, Brandon Jessup. What up, B? Hey, what's happening? What's happening? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. What's up, Sandra? Yeah, like I'm I'm really, really excited to have this conversation and to reconnect with you. It's been over 20 some years since we really like been in connection with each other. So I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Um, and one word is service. It's service. I, um, I've really... I tried like, you know, when you when you come out of college and you're like, all right, well, what I'm gonna do, or even not even when you come out of college, but you know what I'm saying, when you matriculate and becoming an adult, you're trying to figure out what you're gonna do with your life. And yeah, you know, I've been working since I was eleven. Like my dad had his own business, you know what I'm saying? You may have seen a couple of times my dad came pick me up in the tow truck from school, you know what I'm saying? Like that's what it was. Um and then you know, you go corporate and like, you know, you try to, you try to do that whole like establishment thing and it just didn't feel right. <clears throat> With the consciousness that we, that we gained in high school um, and the awareness that like my parents had instilled in me and a lot of things, I found that I'm supposed to be serving folks, helping people out and not, not, you know, I'm not doing meals. I'm not the person to be sitting at the soup kitchen. I'm, I, that's not me. But also when we think about like our community, right? Like what it is, where are we going? Um, and my passion in social science says like, no, yeah, that's where you need to go. How can you help inform? How can you be a community builder, right? Um, and how can you do it to where you're not old fashioned? This is not 1963. We're not, you know, the Black Panther Party, right? Like I'm not going to set up a storefront and and have a food program the success of that was the government creating policies right so you know it's in a different context i find myself in the space where i am now um where i travel the country a lot of cases um i'm the the engineer behind a lot of things that happen that change our communities right like the last two um election wins in georgia right i'm instrumental in that space um, and, and so like, yeah, services is my labor of love. If it's, if it's not that, if it's not the community, I'm coaching the baseball team, you know what I'm saying? Um, helping young kids like build those skills to help them get through life. Right. So service. I appreciate service. And I appreciate part of what you're saying in my interpretation of that is service takes on many faces. The heart of it, the service 
um, mobilizing a community, helping people to get where they're trying to go individually and collectively. But it, it has many different faces, right? And one of the faces in which you work through is the political sphere, which I hear the word politics and I automatically take like <laughs> 10 steps back. You know, you know what I mean? You like, I ain't in the kitchen. I'm like, hair net me up because politics just feels like this space where like, I don't really want to mess with it. So I know we're going to, you know, I want to talk about that a little bit, but ever since I knew you were going to be on the podcast, this thought has been like percolating through my mind. And so we're going to probably have to take it back to like 1998 Okay. Or something like that. And so it was it was a not I don't know, maybe eight to ten of us, but we went to Maimon. Do you remember we went to Maimon? Mid-American mm-hmm. Model United Nations. Mm-hmm. And to be real, I don't I how did I get there? Right. I think I got there because I was a good student. <laughs> I was I was involved in a lot of things for context. B and I went to uh I would comparatively say a very small uh catholic high school mm-hmm. adjacent suburb of detroit but might as well have been detroit right i've mm-hmm. shared if you've listened to the podcast for a long time that my trajectory was my parents didn't let me go to public school they found that they wanted a different kind of education for me and back in that time starting in the 80s catholic schools were the only private schools that we had access to so i went i was catholic educated from kindergarten to 12th grade and so I, I get to this high school. It's it's small comparative to if you think, oh, you grew up in a really big city. It's small comparative that my graduate, y'all probably had a few more. My graduating class was 32 people. You remember how many graduated with you? I think we had 44. Right. So mm-hmm. let me give people a second to clutch their pearls because every time I had this come, people were like, what? Yes. Right. Exactly. But I always say like we had small numbers, but every dynamic you had in whatever high school you went to with thousands of people, we had it in ours just with fewer people. Right. Mm-hmm. So now we bring it back. We are somehow I end up in the group of folks who's going to this like United Nations. It was the Mid-American Model United Nations where different students from different schools, I probably statewide, um, come together you're given a country you represent that country and they it's a mock united nations right so we go i don't really understand the assignment <laughs> like <laughs> I, I don't I, think any of us really did until we got there you know what i'm saying so i i like i i now i'm like okay but there there are like two to three moments that i remember from that entire trip which was like I don't, I don't know if it was on a weekend, but we took a train up yeah. to Kalamazoo, you know, yeah. from Detroit. Yeah. We were there about eight, like I said, eight to 10 of us, maybe 12. And a few mem- few moments I remember. I do not remember the country I represented, but it was a small country. Um, Could have been small African country. Um, And so there were these moments where people could speak. And I got up there, whatever the conversation, I don't even know what the conversation was about. But I know I went up there and I got on the mic and I appealed to people's hearts. That's what I remember about me. I don't know what I said. All I know is when I was done, people applauded. And I recognized that that was not part of the process. (laughs) That, you know, people don't talk, you don't applaud in between. That's not what happened. People would go and speak. I went and I spoke, people applauded. 
people became emotional people I appeal to people's hearts and I remember I can see this young lady's face she was a, a young European descendant little young lady who came up to me and she pretty much and, and, and the interesting is I remember when she she represented the United States mm-hmm. and I remember her coming up to me essentially saying like um but that's not the point <laughs> like this is what we're doing and so that has followed me Mm. I just want to say that I'm going to forever miss the assignment as long as I can appeal to people's hearts. And I thought back over two decades and was like, wow, that was the essence of who I was. Even then, I have gone through many, many things, but that remains the same. So I remember that. Mm. I remember going to going to Tim Hortons and somebody, I cannot remember if it was me or somebody else, walked straight into the glass because it was that clean and it was a door and we all (laughs) laughed. I don't remember who it was. I don't even mind taking it saying it was me, but that was funny. And then the third was how invested you were, Brandon, in this process. Mm -hmm. How when we weren't like talk like even when we were like sitting up there so many of us was just like yeah whatever this is a cool trip we we like kicking it with each other and and Brandon was a he understood the assignment and I feel like I watched Brandon what we would now call networking I watched him talking to other people he he didn't come to that experience with a social agenda to kick it with his friends he pretty much abandoned us, <laughs> if you will. And he was out there doing his thing. And I will never forget that. As a matter of fact, I remember the narrative within our small group was almost negative about it. Like, mm-hmm. what he over there doing? You know what I mean? Like, oh, and I remember it's so interesting, the context, right? We 16, 17 year olds. But I remember somebody brought out the Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. oh Brandon over there Uncle Tom and I don't even know that I understood what that meant other than it was this negative connotation but I remember stepping back and being like I mean I don't understand why I'm here why I'm here but I don't understand why you would be upset that he does so that's when I think of, of B-Tug this is what, what we called him in high school hey. when I think of Brandon Jessup and I am following him through social media and I see the work and he tells me he is pivotal and instrumental in voting in Georgia and he's doing these things. I believe it because I saw a 17 year old young man go into a place where we was just like, eh, we don't even know what the hell this is. Right. And he got to work. So that's, that's probably my, one of my core memories of you early on. And so I'm interested to say, like I was able to say, appealing to people's hearts and ha- help making the whole agenda disappear for a moment so people can check in with what's inside of them. That mm-hmm. remains in me to this day. What remains in you to this day from that experience way, way, way back in the day? Um, I remember your appeal to the General Assembly really and the visceral response that western culture gives to black folks when we're giving them the honesty of how capitalism impacts new nations how it impacts um the african-american community the african diaspora 
is something that has often often made white folks uncomfortable. Now we call it being woke. Okay. And the young woman's response to you was exactly what we feel now as adults in the workplace. And we're talking about our experience in modern capitalism. What folks at Borges didn't know, they didn't know my mom was a Black Panther. And they didn't know that my dad was a union member. They didn't know that my stepdad was a union member. They didn't know that both my fathers had come from the South as sharecroppers. They ain't know none of that. They also didn't know that I was adopted either. So I come from a hybrid family of folks who was like, no, nah, at the end of the day. And so I went to Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, right? So I come from Baptist and you talking about putting me into a Catholic mindset where you telling us that, hold on, Black is beautiful, right? Father London and all them conversations mm. about who you are, where you are, understand who you are and whose you are, right? Is something that was eye-opening for me. I remember representing Germany. The assignment was, we are a first world country and it's a looming war in Iraq. Now this is 1998, like you say, 1998. And then we're, we're getting into this space about, hey, the first Gulf War has, has decided and they still got nuclear weapons. What's going on? Now, who will we know that two years later, right? Well, two and a half years later, um, Colin Powell will take that same argument to lead a war and an invasion of that country. And at that point, articulating what Western culture and what, what the West had been seeing as a threat to, to, to quote unquote, the world was something that I understood, but but still having a level of humanity about what is accountability when you make an agreement to a world about nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation. And what does that mean for all of us, right? And so <clears throat> nuclear vapors trail, they <laughs> get in the air and that's it. So I'm, I'm there in an environmentalist kind of space, right? I'm there in a not understanding that like Germany ain't got no black folks in it. But we're the only black people there, right? So I'm experiencing culture shock. Mm. And the best way for me to understand who, and, and plus I'm competitive. I'm competitive. All the folks is in there, they getting engaged, they're jumping in the middle of it. And I saw it from the jump. I'm like, okay, like they ain't going to come here and kick our asses. Mm. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? They ain't gonna come and kick our asses. I don't care. Like I, I'm a, I'm gonna make sure that they know that that them black folks from Detroit came and represented. Mm -hmm. And remember, right? Like in the past, like we was kind of spotty showing up over there. And then in the future, I think it was probably like the last or one of the last two classes to go. Yeah. And now, black black folks from Michigan don't even participate in this. Yeah. 
So all the conversations about like politics and community, right? Because black folks, politics and community, they go together. They they aren't they aren't separate. They mm-hmm. are not separate, right? How we operate as a community does dictate our policy. And so, you know, I was there and was like, okay, well, we ain't gonna get we ain't gonna get we ain't gonna get uh blown out the water. We're gonna show up, we're gonna do our thing. And if it wasn't for you being as transparent as you were about like where we should be, I wouldn't have been able to walk in there with, cause we had to start drawing up resolutions. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, that's a painstaking process. And honestly, to this day, I still write resolutions, <laughs> right? Like, like, you know, and we'll talk about like my matriculation, right? Through, especially through college. But like, you know, to this day, like I, I talked to the SEC about a lot of things, right, regarding communications in my line of work. And so, like, yeah, like when we when we're pioneering and when you're when you're um enterprising, right, as a nonprofit organization, and, and my chosen, my chosen industry I work in is in the nonprofit industry. So, like when you're enterprising as a nonprofit, a lot of folks are like, Well, what do you mean? Like you're owning things. Why can we not own things? Why should we not own things? We're if if and especially in the age of intellectual property right and meaning that like our phone devices and the things that we use every day amass so much of our personal property and it's for sale yeah right like so so like the ethics where are the ethics in any of this right and like and so there are larger conversations for us to have for our future so i saw that space as being like all right like yeah this is dope um, this is another extension of of me because we didn't have student government at the school. It was too small for us to govern. We could just self-govern, right? Like, okay. <laughs> Listen, and, and to put it in perspective, like, so Jay, he says this. I, I roll my eyes at him and be like, shut up, but it's true. He like, for real, for real, y'all could have your class reunion at Fridays and not even have to make like a special a special reservation and I say that because you're right when it goes oh we need a reunion part of it is I am a Facebook away from pretty much everyone I graduated with with the exception of two to three people who not on socials and I know somebody who still talks to them so you're right we didn't we had a student council right like quote unquote but that didn't mean anything because we were self-governing and and even before you continue it is fascinating to me, though, that you can look back and say, I saw this ass. And I want to say that mm, I don't know that any of the, uh, the rest of us did. With the exceptions, of, I will give you, um, oh, my God. Sean. Sean, thank you. I was seeing his face. With the exception of Sean, maybe Kyle. You know what I mean? So it's like. Other than that, it was a social trip. People got to get on the train. They got to go somewhere. And it just is fascinating to me that that you were so tapped in, even at that time, to what this could mean for you in the present and in the future. I can look hindsight and say that it was the, it was part of my development. 
and being able to be in front of it to do that thing to hear you say you remember it even touched a little something because in my mind I remember this thing I did I remembered the response but ain't no that wasn't didn't want nobody paying attention to that right and that's that's my own work that sometimes I'll be like and that wasn't memorable so that that was impactful for me but so many other people didn't see this as anything else than like a school assignment slash something they got to do why do you think that was I hear the I hear the family, I hear all of that stuff, but what was it about B's life that like allowed him to tap into something like that at such an early age? Uh I think it's his blessing, honestly, yo. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't nothing, nothing that really like that was a hard catalyst. Like, so look, like honestly, like my dad and my stepdad, neither one of them you know, graduated high school, like on quote unquote on time, right? They, they remember when the schoolhouse was really a shack, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, but politics is something that always impacted him. And this is what my dad would tell me. He'd be like, you don't understand when you work 100% of the product and you only see 10% of it, no matter what happens. And you may not see that 10%. So his, he's giving me this in an aspect of like life, right? Like life, you're not, you're not supposed to work for 100% of anything and only see 10% of the returns. That's not fair, right? That is not fair. It's, it's application. I didn't understand until I went to college and I'm, and I'm doing all these studies and I'm going here, I'm going there. But what brought it in context were black women talking about, Hey, look, get out of the logic of this. There's a human aspect of this mm -hmm. that we have to embrace. And if we don't, we lose it all. And so, so now nah, it wasn't nothing necessarily that was like, all right, like, you know, you, you gonna, you gonna do this. You're going to do that. It was just, it was just a natural calling and like just being in spaces and just saying, all right, like one, like being competitive, playing football was that like, you ain't gonna let nobody just come on your yard and do you in your kind of way and and look like yeah all the other trips i'm chilling <laughs> i'm straight chilling um but even to this day like we said like when when we at convenings and conventions and stuff and i'm i'm somewhere you know folks know like no i'm brandon turned on like they like they like you're not the normal it dude you ain't sitting in the back on a computer right mm -hmm. like you are not a you are not the typical quote-unquote nerd Mm -hmm. so you that's where your extrovert come out now any other time leave me alone right but uh, mm -hmm. like you know that's just what it is that was that was just a space that energized me I, I i saw that it don't it's something else my dad always said it was like it don't mean nothing if it ain't on paper and i saw the vehicles of putting this stuff on paper like i saw it like okay so this is how you get stuff to getting on paper and um yeah, it is that that really did shape how I approach my work and how I approach like career throughout the rest do it to now. Yeah. Next year. So what does work service, <laughs> the mobilization, getting it on paper, how does that show up for you now? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of the question. But then there is this aspect that you brought up, which again I appreciate when someone says there's a whole there's a whole human humanity that's part of this thing right it's not that's the thing about politics right i feel like 
this conversation is helping me be like, nah, let me walk in. Let me appeal to the heart. Let, let me get y'all back in y'all bodies. And then, then, then y'all go do all that political stuff. But how do you maintain that? Because I feel like what I have seen mm. at a distance, and this isn't just politics, I'm going to put politics, I'm going to put religion, I'm going to put a lot of things on the table. I see people start with pure intentions. They look at a thing, working in politics, being a pastor, all these things, and they go like, my heart is for the people. My, 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 My passion is to serve, right? But there is something about those vehicles, the elevation of them, um, the notoriety of whatever that sometimes that water gets real muddy and sometimes the work itself can take people away from why they even started right so what has been the grounding that keeps you focused on why you started this thing instead of being swept away in the vehicle of the ways that you're choosing to go about it yeah. Uh ooh, that's 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 ooh, that's that's context. That's a heavy question. Um I'll start first with recognizing that in a capitalist society, everything is industry first. If it's religion, it's an industry. Mm-hmm. Each church has to create their own paperwork, right? And start a business to be identified, right? Politics, same thing. Like if you're a candidate, you have to create your committee, you have to file it. There's a there's a process. And the hard the hardest part about that, right, is is money has to exchange for people to do things, right? Money has to exchange. So in an industry where you have a country of 330 million people. Okay. And yes, in order for you to be successful in anything, you have to have like the guiding principles in your core to stay at it. Right. And for me, it's been, well, what does success look like for me? And and for a while, a very long while, I thought that running for office was the way I should go. I thought, you know, it's analysis be like, that's a natural aspect. Like I'm supposed to be a politician at that. And seeing, like, for one, being a Black male in this space, that, like, I'm not afforded the same legacy that white people are afforded in this space, specifically white men, right? Like, and you get, and so we can be critical of a constitution and say, oh, well, you know, the founding fathers were all just, you know, these white folks is hanging around and everything like that. True, absolutely true. And so, like, that's the context of chateau slavery. So if, I, if I'm if i true to my core and who I am as an African-American, I got to realize all of these things that came into place to even bring me here. All right. I'm here now. We fight in the consistent fight for justice and love is really where I am. Right. That is that is an arc that I may never see the end of. And embracing that and accepting that is fine. I garden, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that the that the so the seeds I sow, I, I want to see. I don't want to reap those benefits. I want to see them. 
And I often understand, like right now, I got I got about 30 sunflower sunflowers like blooming in my front yard. It's gonna be a black squirrel that's gonna bite the head off about 15 of them before the end of this month. Is that nature? Yeah, it is. Do I go shooting the squirrels? Maybe not. But it's the cycle of things. And so the same thing in politics, when you have, I believe that that in the onset of this country, when we were trying to figure out, and you know, it was mostly white men, they dealing with a percentage of the population. We were we were property, right? And so now you're still dealing with the fact that they believe that 535 people could effectively govern over a country this size. They didn't imagine. They didn't imagine passing Mississippi, right? They didn't imagine that we will be a $15 trillion a year business. They didn't. And so... You know, of course, you hope for it, but now you got it, and now it's here. So, okay, so we're we're all living in this country. We all have responsibility to it, whether it's whether it's to to maintain it. But if we're going to maintain it, we got to work and make it better, especially if we're bringing children into this space. And even if we leave this country, you go wherever: Angola, France, Ukraine, China. You have a duty to give back to that space. Service is the price you pay for the space you occupy. We often use that in context of, of politics. But the fact is, if you want to get to heaven, that's probably where you start. Is recognizing the space that you occupy. So like, yeah, if you act the real shitty in the space and you make it funky, guess what? You better go clean it up. There's a lot of people who don't clean up their shitty spaces. And part of my, part of my language, but it's, it's honest. Right. So so for me to have that check of accountability, right, I have to it's being accountable to to the space that I'm in. Um with the with the information and things that I build is not for me to know in a whole as a tool over other people. Right. So with the last census, the organization I work for of state voices across the country we work with like hundreds of partners and our organization is led by black women all right so like so there's a grounding that i receive every day that's like y'all working with my sisters like literally like my sisters <laughs> you know what i'm saying like they will talk to me when i'm when i'm out of when i'm talking crazy they'll they'll raise me up when when i'm building well and 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 those checks are the things that keep me from being like, yep, I'm going to go run for office or, yep, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to be a lobbyist because that's the quickest way for me to get to six and seven figures. Right. Like, so if if money is your motivator, right, money has never been my motivator. And and that I think that's one of the things that's really been the grounded space for me, because I've seen millions like exchange at the time. Like I know I'm the scene of wire transfers. I know when I see him, I met the president of the United States, 44 and 46, right? Like, and things like that. I've been in the spaces of power, but I've also been in spaces where I can create power, right? Where I'm amassing my agency, right? So I'm not, I'm not borrowing someone else's space. I'm standing on my own two feet 
And that's that's more of an elixir than anything. And I think many of us, the majority of Americans, have a hard time assessing their agency in today's democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, when I hear you say that, I go, well, how would they? How would I? Exactly. (laughs) How would I? And when I can think of all of the things that that have gone into what we would call the cauldron that made Shonda, uh, autonomy and agency were not heavily doused, right? That wasn't the seasoning. That was the thing that accidentally fell in there and you got to pick it out. How does it get in there, right? Mm -hmm. Because so many of the structures, whether we're talking about parenting, whether we're talking about religion, whether we're talking about education, where all of policing, like all of those things sent the messages that you do what you're told to do. You don't don't you don't need to think about it. Right. So, you know, be mentioned Father Lunnan. Father Lunnan was a black priest um, who was an educator at our high school who for real, for real, so many of us weren't ready for. We ain't even had a capacity to understand this man, right? He, he, there are so many things that now I can look back and be like, I wish I could go back and re-listen. I wish I could like listen to what he was saying. Because now I look back and I think he was one of, I can count three. You had Jeter, you had, um, you had Father Lennon, and then you had, um, Miss hey, Coach, uh, oh, you miss, um, yeah, yep, 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 yep. Uh, she had Miss Joiner, yes, right. Mm-hmm. What what I just named for y'all were the three black folk who weren't coaches who educated us. Mm-hmm. We are a school full of black people. Beth was the only white girl I went to school with. <laughs> we still homies, right? Um, but it's a school full of black children but we are educated largely by white folks in a Catholic system. And and, and check it out and check it out. And them black folks is taking a huge pay cut to be there. Right. Yes. All the systematic inequalities that they were sitting there, that that was right in our face. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's real. Right. So we, and so then you have father Lennon who, when I sit and try to go like, okay, what does this little girl who's in high school think about Father Lennon, I think he's crazy. <laughs> I think dude is nuts, right? He just, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I distinctly remember him taking a book out of somebody's hand and throwing it down the hallway. Um, I he, he just, he was this radical dude that I only word I knew was like, oh, he crazy. And he talking crazy. He talk crazy. Now I realize what talking crazy was is he had infiltrated a white system. Say it. So that he could try his best to talk to these black kids Mm -hmm. and get them to understand what the white system never wanted them to know. Mm -hmm. Not just wasn't teaching them. That that's a whole different thing. Oh, we're not teaching it. No. He came in to infiltrate a system to teach them what this system never wanted them to know. Because if they knew, we were more than they were. And if we truly understood who we were, that system couldn't function the way that it functioned. It cannot function. And so as long as he was crazy to us and we like, oh, I ain't taking this test. But then I took a class 
because he was just a dude that was like around that I stayed away from because I didn't heard stories like dude over here out of pocket right but then I took a class with him and it was real hard for me to call him crazy because no matter what it looked like the way he looked at me when me personally when he talked to me is I realized he saw more Mm. than anybody else saw he saw more than I saw. And it's not in what he said. It was how he looked at me. It was almost like, what do you see that I don't see? Then we got to, so my senior year, every year before this, we would do a thing called the senior auction. So I get the senior year. Every year before me, there was a senior auction, right? Before one of the dances or whatever, where, you know, it was an auction and you could bid on people who you would like, for a dance or take to the dance or whatever that is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the aspect of me then that's now is I didn't have a mic in my hand since I was four years old. Shonda going to be the one talking that that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, And I remember him. I want to even say pleading with me. Don't do this. Don't do this. And it's like, I was torn because he wasn't um, he wasn't doing a power over. He wasn't saying you can't, you won't, I won't let you. He was trying to appeal to me. Don't do this. And it's like, but why? This is this is what seniors do. And then he said, like. They auctioned us. Like they auctioned us. Mm hmm. As humans, they mm. auctioned us. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I'm 18, 17, 18. I don't get it. But something in my body was like, oh, right now, we still did the senior auction. Mm-hmm. We still did it. I was still the one talking. But I'm not kidding. As I'm in the cafeteria with my microphone orchestrating this whole thing, my whole body just was in shambles inside because there was a part of my my ancestral historical intergenerational knowing that got stirred up in me I understand it now that I understand the body and somatics and trauma I I get it now as an 18 year old child I didn't understand that standing up there literally auctioning off my peers Mm -hmm. evoked in me a historical traumatic knowing Mm-hmm. And the white people loved it happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 I appreciated he didn't take my autonomy because that would have been doing the same thing that the institution was doing. He came about it in a different way. He told us secrets. That's what his class felt like. His right. class felt like I was going somewhere to learn secrets that I wasn't supposed to know. And those secrets were about who I was. And Mm -hmm. what I could be. So like when you brought him up, I was like, man, how I perceived him. And it was almost like I felt like the narrative of the boogeyman. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. stay away. No, you know, like he crazy. Right. And I'm not saying that it just felt like that was supposed to be the narrative. But I I, he has since passed away. Yeah, I, I will sit in honor of a man who came to infiltrate a system for a small group of kids. 
Mm -hmm. A small group of kids, most of which wouldn't get it, wouldn't understand it, would call him crazy, would do all the things. But like, I can now see the seeds he planted in me. I'll never in my life again do an auction. Amen. Ever. Amen. And, and you know, like me, like 17 year old, shoot, 16 year old me. Um, and I remember our auction too, right? Like I'm in my machismo mode, right? I'm like, yeah, you know, and then the context of like, this is to help us as seniors, right? Where's your entrepreneurship outside of selling your body? Come on. You understand? Mm -hmm. So there was the, the staff called him crazy because he kept challenging them too. Like, how y'all going to keep putting this in their in they face like this? Yes. You know what I'm saying? Y'all a whole bunch of nuns and y'all going to keep doing this. But, but y'all at the same time, talk about women's liberation, right? How y'all not walking around in habits, right? And how y'all able to wear what you want to wear. And, you know, like this, that, and the third. So y'all not even discussing our own like internal politics, which talks about a whole nother space about white women versus black women in America. Right. So like they, it's okay for them to teach y'all to go a certain way to do certain things. But when it comes to them, like we have to be liberated, like, hold on, slow down family. Don't we all need to be liberated? Aren't we all minorities in this space? Especially like going back to the beginning of it all. Right. Like, like, and think about the power complex there. There weren't too many like white men there teaching. Mm -mm. Understand? Excuse me. So like, so now, you know, you know, as you as you see, like what's going on and what's moving and, and reflecting backwards, everything you say is absolutely correct. Like even like you recanting, you know, re recalling the conversations and in, in like just those senior spaces, like my back started to get that got a tingling up my back. Right. It's yeah. that, that the ancestors like, yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like for that? real. Like I was talking, I was like, hey, y'all, I had to put my hand on my chest like we good. We not going. But it, it is. It rises up. Mm -hmm. It rises up. And so, you know, and unconsciously, um, you know, matriculating through life and, you know, coming out of that, out of just, you know, the, that good Catholic experience, right, um, is is something that, like, is indoctrination when we think about, like, you know, just what America is. You know, we were learning in America that was dying. Um, but then at the same time, like we're the generation that brought in computers and the information systems, right? Like it's it's us, it's our generation. It's not the classes before us. Literally, like the class of '99 is the class that was born at the time where all these things started to move. And so, um, you know, I think we have a special space in time where we where we have to be the the better stewards, right? of of what it means to be human right um and and all those types of things so nah i <laughs> that was good like i had to take some deep breaths because i think one of the one of the takeaways that i'll i'll bring full circle from my work but that i i frequently hope people get anytime they're listening to the podcast is the experiences that we've had historically matter they shape our understanding of belief, worldview, behavioral patterns that we are constantly moving in and out of as an attempt to find our way closer to safety, connection, belonging, 
or moving away from things that feel the opposite of that. When we understand, though, that it's not just the experiences that we've had within our lifetime, but that we carry an epigenetic knowing. Epigenetics is the study that tells us that the genes and the way they express themselves within us get turned on and off based on our environment. And then we pass that down to our offspring. Right. So it ain't even really, excuse me, woo woo. When I'm talking about like there was a knowing inside of my body. No, there, there, there is DNA inside of my body that carried me and transported me back to the actual slave block. Well, I was sitting when I was standing there. Now, the difference is I was the orchestrator of this experience within my high school. I didn't get to orchestrate that. My ancestors didn't get to orchestrate that when they were standing there. So if you don't think that causes a conflict within the body. Now, why someone might not recognize that is because we're so disconnected from our bodies. So we go head space. What do I think? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? What does your body tell you about mm-hmm. that? Because your thoughts are just a narrative that your brain wraps around what's happening in your body. But when yeah. we disconnect from our bodies, then we then there's there's no narrative to pull from. Oh, I don't really feel I don't think nothing about that because you don't feel nothing. So where are you getting your narrative from? External forces, external, external stimuli. If you can't pull it from within, you're getting it from without. And so when I think about that, I was a disconnect. I, I wasn't connected to my body. No one told me about that except for potty training, right? So now I don't have an internal knowing at that time. I didn't have the mechanism to listen to that epigenetic ancestral knowing and go, wait a minute, I shouldn't do this because I was disconnected. So instead, I had to look at external sources that told me, oh, this is what happens every year. This is raising money for your prom. This is da-da-da-da-da, right? So... I'm hoping that your experience might not be like ours. You might have listened like, I can't even relate to a school that has that. No, but you can relate to who in your life infiltrated a system and tried to show you who you were. You might not have recognized it. Mm -hmm. Who did you call? Go back to the people you called crazy when you were younger. And just think about them for a minute from this particular lens. Think about the people you thought were safe and had your back when you were younger. And think Mm -hmm. about them from this lens. All of a sudden, we have the capacity to recognize the things that formed how we see the world. The way we saw them when we were children and adolescents through one lens might be a very, very different lens through which we can look at them now if we step back and understand how systems work. Because if the system can have us in the, I'll come back, this is why I don't diagnose. This is why when people go, you don't take insurance. No, I do not take insurance. Your insurance requires a diagnosis. I refuse to diagnose because the DSM and diagnosis says the person is the problem. And I say, no, they're not. The system is the problem. And people are having regular, normal responses to messed up systems. And I refuse to pathologize a person for navigating a system that is oppressive. All right just to make some money. I ain't got to do that. I won't do that. And so when we go back and look at our childhoods and our adolescence and things from a systems perspective, what was the role of capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy? What was the role of that? And and now without shame and blame, how does that show up in me? So we talked about it being pride month during the recording of this podcast, right? Yeah. yeah. And how I can sit in the fact that I have lived in a fat black woman's body all of my life and look at those identities that are oppressed 
and be like, ain't nobody got time for that. But then when I look at, I was just talking to Jay about this. Mm. Um, I said, the level of courage that it takes someone in the LGBTQ plus community to live their authentic truth is a courage that to be for real, for real, I never want to have to experience. Because when we go out for a date night, when we are out, I have never, ever, ever considered that someone will walk past me and tell me that we were going to hell, that we were disgusting, that we need not be in public. That never crosses my mind. Now, I might think, where are we going? Is this a mostly white environment? I think about that, but I never think that every time there is an election, I will have to defend my right to love who I love ever I have never ever thought about I have never ever considered that someone would tell me I'm not fit to be a parent because of who I'm parenting with Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so systems and being in those same capitalistic white supremacist patriarchal systems created within me the ability to be like that's not my problem right but it is but it is mine because if I want people to understand that racism is their problem, even if they're not, we're all impacted by it. But even if they are non-melanated, racism is their problem. Mm-hmm. I have to understand that transphobia, homophobia, and all these things are also my problem. That's so right. How does that intersect with the work that you do in your own intersecting identities, but also in the political realm? Oh, we, um, personally, <clears throat> personally, right? Like, being a heterosexual male, right? Black male, right? One of the things that, and I don't want to keep reaching back to high school, but it's true because you know how 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 men talk because Father London had a little bit of octave in his voice, right? So, you know, because he had, he was a little, he, at sometimes he may come across a feminine folks. That was a whole nother concept. Oh, well, Father London, gay anyway. Way to discredit him. And I started to find over time, like more and more black men in spaces of influence were homosexual, <laughs> right? Or they affiliated as being as, as gay or bisexual or whatever. And it wasn't like, oh no, like, you know, that's a majority, but like the thing, the radicalism and just their lifestyle was something that guided them to make sure they at least every man that they talked to that was black, that was melanated, right? Understood their own power, period. Your own power, just leave it there. And I've gotten more tutelage and instruction at pivotal points in my life from those folks than the traditional leadership that we would prescribe to be able to, to march me through things. So, so, and we know we all may know a Bishop Whitehead, the guy over there in Brooklyn that be hustling up folks, right? Often, naturally, folks will try to guide you to say, "Hey, Bishop Whitehead, to show you how to do things the right way, and this is who you need to go talk to." Bishop Whitehead hustling up you, your auntie and your grandma. You know what I mean? With no accountability, don't want nobody around him to check him, but he often gonna come back and check you. So that's been my personal experience. In my work, um, I have never been in such a diverse environment in my life. Coming from Detroit, right, where everybody's just black, 
monolithic black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Detroit black. Like, and shoot, like you never really even dig into the pieces of what is black. Come on. Right? Like, like realizing that um many of the folks who we deem to be um pioneers in our community and in the movement, we all just assume that they were heterosexual. No, they weren't. <laughs> right? When we talk about the women that that have led to space, Zora Neale Hurston, right? Um, um, a, a strong, strong woman, but also a lesbian, right? And this is the early 1900s, right? Like, so not only were they being ostracized and we couldn't understand, like, why are they ostracizing her? Because of all oh, how she lived her life within the community, within the community, right? And so, you know, you know, it's it's those types of folks. It's it's the fact that like um Maynard Ruskin, who who was the engineer and architect of the of the March on Washington, is buried in history books because he was homosexual. Buried. We would think that Martin Luther King sat down and got on the phone, and now I know what it takes to organize folks and to bring thousands, hundreds of thousands of people into one space. It's a whole lot of phone calls. And nowadays, it's a whole lot of text messages, okay? A whole lot. And Martin Luther King wasn't making no phone calls. <laughs> Come he on. Wasn't, right? Like, he was in he was in that stratosphere of leadership, so he talking to leaders. But the leaders got to have people under them to even make them leaders, To right? right? You're standing on the shoulders of other people while you're in leadership. Yeah. Luckily for us, he had some kind of accountability, right, towards the people that he was leading, which is why you would find him not in spaces where, why you would find him in spaces where he's trying to fight poverty as opposed to, right, fighting some more of the other internal struggles and things that that we thought may have been more important. So so now, like, in my space and, and for the last um, five years, like, specifically, I've been able to work in a black indigenous and people of color space centered in delivering the technology and the tools necessary for them to mobilize their communities in civic engagement. So like you, you'll hear me now start to start to strategically move the conversation from politics to civic engagement, right? Because like, yes, like the politics, how we act in a civic space, yes, that is the action of being civil. The things that we raise, the issues in our society are all politics. But the fact is, like, if we are engaged, those politics and those policies will continue to impact us like Ron DeSantis in Florida right now. Right. So we will always think that, oh, like, here's this white man pushing this stuff down. There's literally a white man going in here and throwing books out the library. No, there are like in Miami. The young woman, um, I can't remember her name right now. Charge it to my mind and not my heart. Um, who gave who gave the po- the the exciting poem during uh, President Biden's um, uh, Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman, thank you. Like so, her po- her poetry has been pulled from the books in in Florida. Mm-hmm. Why? From from what the conversation is now, it's from the it was from the request of a parent. Now let's dig a little bit deeper. From what I understand, that this came, this call came from a conservative Latinx person and family who, who, and if you dig a little bit deeper, 
understanding the conservatism of, of the Cuban community and like how ultra conservative they may be, they're following the line that like color, like you, if you think Ricky Ricardo is the, is what Cuba looks like, you are sadly mistaken. They look like us. So this is a whole nother concept and construct of colorism, right? Yeah. Now saying that, hey, you shouldn't be teaching anything that's empowering to y'all because because of the color of your skin coming up, right? My dad the other day was talking about migration and immigration. And so some of the things, and so again, my dad is not a scholar. He did not go to college. He sent his kids to college. I'm the only one to graduate, right? So, so and you're talking about 14 tries. <laughs> okay <laughs> like <laughs> in, in a hybrid family 14 tries yeah. okay and so looking at that and saying like okay well like how does all this construct work like okay so if you're going to get a Pell Grant that came from the civil rights movement because after you got freedom they realized it made no sense for you to be able to go vote but you can't attend the college because at the University of Mississippi they're going to beat your head in when you walk up there same thing at University of Arkansas same thing at the University of Michigan they'll erect tests that you can't that you can't pass I didn't apply to U of M because I felt that that was a space not for an authentic black man that's what I felt. I had to be a, a uber athlete to go to the premier public institution in the United States. That's 90 minutes away from my home. Right. Even though my mom is literally taking me up there to study for the SAT every weekend, trying to get me, trying to get me into that space. Like, no, you can walk into this space. I was fighting in New Orleans for you to get into that space. Right. So like, and then, so, okay, so you got the Immigration Act. You got all these things coming forward that like put wheels in motion for money just to flow your way, just to flow your way. And so my dad was like, all these folks moving in. And I was like, well, who are you talking about? And he was talking about folks of Middle Eastern descent. And the fact is, is that in a census, most of those folks identify as white. Mm. Because they, they don't even have a checkbox. And so when we as Black folks say, hey, look, you're being misrepresented, they like, no, but this is how I assimilated and got access into this space. You can't tell me to get back from my access. What about my children? <laughs> but you three generations in now, I think you're kind of deep in here. That's <laughs> like, real. And it's time for y'all to be recognized as who you are, right? And so... The, there's so many conversations about culture and identity that that we forego for capitalism. I think that, you know, we need to make sure we keep raising. But back to to uh, the intersections of LGBT in, in, in the communities, like I know I know folks who have gone through transitions. Right. And like you just got to sit back and be quiet. If you respect them as a person, listen to them. Right. Um, and, and, and most of the folks I've seen transition are transition from being women to men. And so there's so much to learn and just like, understand that's not my lifestyle, but this is a lifestyle that happens every day in, in the world. So, okay. So if I'm working with you, these are my coworkers in some spaces. Right. So, um, and like you say, when we talk about like policy and politics, like, yes. And they're like, yo, look, like when I die, in certain states, I have to live in certain states because some states won't recognize my will. Yep. 
right? So like it's it's those types of things that you were like, wow, okay, so that's that's the reality of this space. That's the reality of what's going on. And so when we talk about like the Affordable Care Act and make sure everyone has health care, yes, it's because of things like that, the systematic oppression that, that lobbyists put into place to affirm the things that they're insecure about, right? Which often are led by extreme, extreme, extreme religious folks. So we, we've often celebrated radicalism. And you said, when I'm, and I thank you for raising it. Because our radicals was pop, right? And we still celebrate pop for being that radical that spit in the face of, of law enforcement, that spit in the face of, of, of a structure. And then we walk into that weird construct of, but he raps so much about the things that destroy our community that to this day continue to repeat that same cycle of destruction and mental like degradation of all of us. And so are you really righteous when you do these things? Right? Like, like, and even like in the music that that like my kids listen to, I'm like, man, it's tough. It's tough. And my dad would be like, you ain't gonna have nothing to listen to when you get older. And I didn't understand. I joked that. I was like, man, whatever, you old folk, and you don't know what you're talking about. I see it now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> going it. going back to the wisdom we were handed as children that I've come to realize I lost my father when I was <clears throat> 24. Mm. And I realized that in some ways, I believe he knew he wasn't going to see me through into well into my adulthood. So he gave me so much so early. And part of the thing was I thought it was supposed to be consumed at the time. And nope. He was giving me things that wouldn't, that ain't going to make sense to you until I'm gone, until you're old, until you have kids, until all of this stuff. So now I've been envisioning, like, let me just put that in a Ziploc. Let me put that in a baggie. Let me put that in a freezer. I ain't got to try to consume it right now because I don't understand it right now. But there are so many things that we have been given. So you know, because we got to wrap up, like we could keep, I, I'm looking at the time like, dang, because we, we there's going, so going right much, now. so much that I want to talk about, but I want to encourage all of us to um, like go back in your freezer. You know, growing up, we always had a deep freezer. You got what's in the house that got your regular everyday stuff. But then you got that deep freezer that you keep out in the garage or in the basement. Mm -hmm. Go dig down in the bottom of that because there is some wisdom that some people have given us. There are some experiences that we've had that if we can look at it from a new lens, we'll realize that they can be very life-giving. And, you know, I was sitting... I think it was yesterday and I I, I want to leave us on my end and then be, I'll give you an opportunity to close out with anything else you want to share, but there's just, just a realization and it came because I was thinking about pride and pride month, but this is a 24 seven, 365 thing. We cannot truly love that, which we do not fully accept. And I'm not talking actions. I'm talking essence. Mm -hmm. Right. And a suitable replacement, if you can't truly love, is to mind your own business. Like, love them or leave them alone. And I say that to every living thing that exists, mm. right? When, when we start to realize truly that every living thing was created with purpose, my, my discomfort, 
my fear, my dislike of those things don't change their purpose. That's, That's about okay. me. Right. And so what I'm learning is minding my own business. That's what I want my civil engagement to be. Right. If I can't move into a space operating in my purpose and gift, that's going to that is going to advance a thing. Then I need to learn how to mind my own business because detracting from it, that ain't what this is about. So as we are in Pride Month, but this goes beyond, like you said, your comfort with your like of your recognition of someone's essence don't change that it exists and calling it an agenda doesn't change it either. Mm. Right. Saying that people are forcing something on you just because it is now more visible. At some point, everybody who occupied this planet thought it was flat. Period. And then all of a sudden it was like, just because people recognized it wasn't, doesn't mean that it then became your recognition or acknowledgement that people exist along a spectrum because nature is spectrum, not binary, period. Go in nature and find me a binary. Come back and let me know when you have, when you recognize that how literally the nature was created along a spectrum, but you think you're going to put humans inside of a binary because you want to. Come on now. If you can't move into love, then learn how to exit. Learn how to mind your own business. There's enough of yours to keep you going, right? So I'm leaving folks on that note. B, mm -hmm. anything I didn't ask, we didn't get a chance to talk about that you really want to leave the listeners with? Um. First, first, you said a word. I wanna, I wanna just get time and space with what you just said about humanity being a spectrum. Um, I think that's that is huge and monumental when we just operate. Thank you for raising that. I really appreciate that. I said it more succinctly than what I could have said it. Right, I would have gotten the policies and stuff. Um, if anything, I think. The challenge, my challenge, and we kind of got to it a little bit, but black men, and I think the way that that like current corporate media or just the media industry operates, um, it's not it's something that we shouldn't react to. We own it, right? Like that's why I love your podcast. Like this is yours, right? And podcasting overall, these are things that we own that we can create and we can use to dispel myths, but then also like raise each other up. And we need more mediums that raise each other up. Mm -hmm. There is, and Isaac Hayes III, I brought this up earlier and he was saying that like, there's no black nationalism because there's no black nation. Like what nation do you belong to when you call yourself black outside of Crayola? You in the Crayola nation, right? And so in that context, right, like you have to, there has to be more harmony between men and women. And there shouldn't be, in, in all folks who prescribe to be people of hue, melanated people. And like, so we can't, we can't continue to pit ourselves one against the other when we know the overall oppressor is using that to keep us divided, period. We don't have, because yes, we are divided in so many spaces. There's a 
this myth that black men are growing in conservatism and all this other stuff and it's it's people try to measure it is how people vote from what i know to be true is that out of the you know tens of millions of people of color in this country roughly 40 percent of them are even engaged in what's going on in their community right like i mean they have the time and one of the biggest things in the handcuffs of capitalism is that they teach you that that in white supremacy is that everything is scarce and there's not enough of anything for you. Yeah. And scarcity is one of the largest tools, right, of the oppressor. When you know and you embrace the fact that we do live in abundance, right? We live in abundance. We're the most abundant country in the world. Come on. Then that's where we get into the real conversation about, well, how the heck can a guy like Elon Musk be a billionaire? And then, but he's telling you that you have to pay him $8 to get a blue check mark. Right? If this is about sharing information, right? Let's get back to just honestly validating sources. And folks are like, oh, why are you pitching the fit off $8? Because they're using this to funnel the news that you receive. Right? So black Twitter, right, now becomes kind of confuddled because when you had all these unique organic spaces and, and voices now, right, like I can filter the ones out that I that I'd like. The same thing with a lot of social media. And so we're in this space where we have to we have to teach our children that their voice and their minds are what they own is it, all that's their essence and they have to protect that and they need to make sure that when they go out and talk into this into this public that's now just like not only just personal person communication but it's digital right there are so many different aspects of like how you can present yourself that we need to make sure that we keep that we keep the authenticity of being human the main thing right and not like how do we capitalize on our thoughts and on, on on small actions to push people one way or another. There is no there is no separation between the black community. I don't see it. We're fragmented, but we're fragmented like all communities in a capitalist society. So yes, if it's if it's getting to church or whatever, fine. If it's going to the movement festival. Go get over there, right? Get over there, get immersed in it, and enjoy humanity. Um, and that's that's where I really want to leave, folks. Is that like the more we connect with each other, the better our country builds. The more easier our conversations are about like life and sustainability in this country and where it's going. And um. Yeah, like I can give you statistics and facts later, right? Like I, I'm a, I'm a, like coming out of school, like I'm an economist, so I can give you the spreadsheet whenever you get ready. But the relative aspect of it all is me getting my hands in the soil, and I've always been that way. I've always been that way. So, um, what's beautiful this month, um, Detroit will be erecting a statue in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King. We would think that we would have been had him, but we don't. So right post Juneteenth, like that Friday, the city's going to erect it and they're going to show it off for the world. It's going to lead the 60th anniversary of Dr. King's Freedom Walk down Woodward. 
And so being being an executive board member of the Detroit branch NAACP, I'm honored to be in this space. But I'm also honored for the fact that we're working because we recognize that in 1963, we weren't there. Yeah. We were too busy saying, he's a radical. Look, he's going to mess it up for the rest of us. Yada, 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 yada. And now 60 years later, we're trying to figure out reparations still. Right? No, that's real. So, you know, it's 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 reparation even just for us as a community to continue to commemorate that walk because yeah when he was trying to do it the folks that came before me wasn't listening they saw him as a threat to the establishment and that's the thing right can those people now go back in their deep freezer and go i understand it different now you understand i it's not it's not to evoke shame it's just for us to go, we got a whole lot of what we need already. And if we stop trying to strive to get it from a system that ain't never going to give us what we need to dismantle it, but we realize that we've already got it because some people have it's dug down and fortified it, then we'd be like, oh, I got this and I got this, right? I, I got all this stuff in my deep freezer. I, it's been here. It's froze. Let me thaw it out. Let me understand it better, right? So, so much, but... For now, we'll have to have B back. But for yeah, now, yeah. we're going to wrap up. And I want to say, Brandon, it was so good to reconnect after all these years. And just to just to kind of be here, you know, those two young people at Maimon, right? <laughs> who they were then still is who we are now. We just wouldn't have known it. And it was so good to connect with you now you know, 25 years later to be like, man, we still on this journey, still impacting the world in different ways. So thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me and my listeners. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's, this has been a, 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 a not a labor of love at all. This has been a, 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 a time of love. I appreciate sharing with you. Thank you for having me on. And um, I look forward to the next time. Yes. If people want to talk to you, get in touch with you, they got more questions or they want to color, whatever the thing is, how can people find and get in touch with you? Uh, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter um, um, at, at it's ITS B Jessup. Um, you can find me on Facebook too. Um, my name Brandon Jessup. Um, but I'm a little bit more guarded on Facebook. You can find me there. Um, not not easily. Um, but I think um, you'll probably find me in the street. Mm, that's <laughs> real. With you, you'll find me in the street if it's if it's something um democracy focused or like just movement focused. You're probably gonna find me in there with a hat on, with about thirty folks around me trying to figure out what the next move is. And um, reminiscing of Maimon, right? Like, yeah. ain't changed, ain't unchanged. I'll be right in the thick of it. <laughs> I love it. Listen, y'all, as usual, I want to thank y'all for tuning in. I want to give shouts out to Jay Sugg, who does my production for the podcast from Instant Classic Media. Trey Angel provides all of my music. As always, you, my listeners, it's not a radio station. You don't stumble across. You come here intentionally. Um, don't forget I'm on all the major social media outlets if you have suggestions for content or guests hit me up at www.thelaborsoflove.com and if you haven't already just go ahead and stop it right now give me that five star rating write a review share the podcast with your loved ones and friends until we connect again you all be well be well